Welcome to the TurfNet Renovation Report, sponsored by Golf Preservations, the Greens Drainage Specialist. I'm Anthony Piapi, your host, and joining me today is golf course architect and shaper, Kai Golby. Welcome, Kai. Thanks, Anthony. Good to be here. And where am I finding you today? Are you in St. Louis? Is that true? I am. I'm in my little office in St. Louis, Missouri. Yes, sir. And how often do you, I know you travel the world literally, how often are you there? Um, this is the second week I've been here since, uh, since early July. And I think last year in 2018, I was here 23 days out of 365. So it's, it's, it's a rarity. <laughs> so you have more frequent flyer miles than anybody I've ever No, heard. actually, I, I don't do bad on those, but what I do is I actually stay on the, on the side of the golf course. So I'm not like jumping in a plane every 10 days or something like that and going somewhere. I'm actually going somewhere and staying there and working. And that's kind of my, I don't know what I think maybe separates me a little from others is I'm willing to be there every day and do what it takes. So just the last job I was on in Saratoga Springs, New York, which you may get to, I was there for nine hole renovation for, you know, 66 straight days of work, never left the place. So, no kidding. So don't get as many plane miles as you might think. And Kai, before we go on, I just want to make sure that people understand your name is Kai, and I'm not shortening the name Kyle to Kai. That is your given name. Yes, that's correct. That was, that was given to me by my parents. I didn't control that, and uh, that's what it is. <laughs> All right, and speaking of your parents, we, I also want, because I get this question before, you are related to the former PJ Tour golfer, Bob Goldie. Yeah, he's my father, so we're very related. <laughs> And he has, he won a Masters. He won the 68 Masters. He was, I got, he was second in a PGA and second in a U.S. Open. That's right, yeah. And he won the Masters in that famous incident where Robert DiVincenzo signed the wrong scorecard or signed an incorrect scorecard. Yeah, yeah, he did. And so, you know, as a kid, you just knew, I just knew he won the Masters. But as you grew up, you kind of learned. Yeah. Kind of the more of the story. And, you know, it's kind of unfortunate for everybody in that situation. And that, that was, that never caused a problem between you and, and DiVincenzo, uh, your dad and DiVincenzo, did it? No, they were actually friends. They, you know, I think, you know, this isn't the time to go into it, but a lot of people were thinking they played together that day and they weren't playing together. My dad was behind him in a different group, but oh, okay. a lot of people thought right. he was playing with DiVincenzo and actually he had tons of hate mail from people thinking he screwed DiVincenzo out of the chance for a playoff, like, you know, changing his scorecard or something. Wow. And obviously that's not what happened, but uh, yeah, he got a lot of really, it's pretty weird. You know, it was pre-internet era. God knows what he did in the internet era. But, uh, <laughs> you know, lots of people took time to write letters to him telling me what an asshole he was. I don't know if I can say that on, well, you on can. the podcast. You just, you just did and we'll, you let the, okay. we'll let the editors take care of that. Okay. <laughs> and, then, and then the other information, uh, piece of information I, I thought that was interesting and, and, sh- and surprising was your dad never played in an open championship. No, he, uh, as we were talking a little earlier, he was really good friends with Sam Snead. They were really close and Sam was older than him. So Sam was kind of his idol as well as his friend. And Sam played, I think it was 1946. If I, I can remember that he won the open at St. Andrews. And I think Sam got $500 when he won and it's cost him about $3,000 to travel over there. And so he never went back and he told my dad that if you're not in America, you're camping. And so my dad never went to play at the British Open, which I think he thought was a mistake later on. But at the time, right. you could make more money, prize money, I think, 
staying in America in the late fifties and sixties and actually traveling over there to play. Right. So, you know, it was an economic decision, I guess a little bit as well. But as you were saying, your, your dad grew up playing on a, on a very firm golf course and he might've been the guy, he might've done well as Lee Trevino did coming out of Texas to play in those on those courses yeah i think he realized it was probably a mistake and he only played over there the funny part is he really only played in the uk once and that was for a shell wonderful world of golf match against uh God, who was it against christy o'connor and uh oh no kidding and it was they were at Bally Bunyan. I was like, really? You went to Bally Bunyan? I never knew that. And he's like, how'd you like that place? And he's like, I don't know. All I saw was my tops of my shoes and the umbrella. <laughs> it was raining so hard. They just <laughs> And they actually never put it on television because the cameras couldn't see them. It was all they, the cameras picked up was fog and rain. They couldn't even see the players. So it doesn't exist. Oh my God. As one of the, uh, but they were there to do it. And it just, so he only played there once, but anyway, he would have been really good at that. Just, you know, it was, the conditions in the 1950s in the Midwest, and I go out in 1950s when he grew up playing, it was 1940s and late 30s as a kid. So, uh, you know, he was playing on hard pan, baked out places. And it was actually, uh, he grew up on a William Langford course. They didn't know the Langford course, but it was a pretty good little golf course too. So too bad he didn't go over there. Yeah, that's really, that's, that's I, I surprising because he did so well in the other three majors. You know, that's what. No, he was, he was a pretty good player. <laughs> but I understand that I mean, for the money, like, well, yeah, and, and for the money. I mean, he won 11 times on the PGA Tour, and he won on the senior, well, you know, what is now the Champions Tour. Yeah. But, again, like you're saying, Sam Steen was Those guys, the they cared a lot about the money back then. <laughs> you know, there wasn't a lot of it out yeah. there, so. <laughs> <laughs> right. They're not get, they weren't getting $60 million to play a set of irons, right? No, and there was no $9 million pay-per-view event like we got coming up this weekend on Thanksgiving, whenever uh, that is, so. Oh, my Oh my God. Yeah, I think just about the money real quick. I'll tell you one quick one. I think that my dad like, told me like his first tournament, he, he actually worked at, uh, as an assistant pro at Weaver up in Connecticut Oh yeah, and it was for one, for one year. And at the end of that season, he went down to Florida to play in a PGA of a tournament. Um, I can't remember where it was the, somewhere in Florida, but anyway, he actually finished in a tie for 20th place. And that was the last money spot, and he got ten dollars. <laughs> so, like a three-way tie for twentieth was for ten bucks. But he was like, it was the best ten bucks he ever made because it made him exempt. He said for the opening tournament the following year, nineteen fifty-seven, I guess it was. Okay. And so he decided to say screw being an assistant pro and packed up his car and went to California to play in the LA Open. I guess was the first tournament. And because he was exempt and I'm going to try to play the tour. So that's how he ended up on the tour by making 10 bucks. That's unbelievable. $10. Holy cow. Okay. And so now we know how he got into professional golf. How did you get into golf course architecture and shaping? I went to Wake Forest. I played golf. I was not a great player, but I was decent. And I played in the golf team at Wake Forest. Again, I wasn't one of the top five players, which are the guys that play. Right. After college, I decided I kind of was just sick of golf. I was burnt on golf and uh, just had no interest in playing, much less doing it as any kind of a career. So I went to Boston and worked in the financial business for Fidelity Investments for a few years. And the office building was not my friend. I was not a big sitting in the office every day. just didn't do it for me. And I was like, I got to do something else. And I knew a guy 
that actually was an assistant pro for my dad a long time in the past. And he had a golf construction company. I was like, God, maybe I could do that. might be kind of cool. I might try giving him a call. And literally while I'm thinking about that, my dad called me. He's like, these guys in our hometown are building a golf course and they kind of want me to design it. Um, and I was like, how are you going to do that? And, but you know, at the time as well, he's a, he's a golf pro. He can design a golf course. How right, is that, right. You know? right. And I was like, that'd be cool. I think I'm going to just quit this job. I'm going to go back there and be part of that. Now, you know, I don't know what the hell I'm going to do, but I saw, I did that and moved back to the town I grew up in, which is Belleville, Illinois from Boston. And, uh, ended up working on the crew basically. And all I, you know, I got paid, I think six bucks an hour at the time. And uh, I was out flagging trees and kind of just running around with you know, a union road building crew building this golf course. And uh, my dad was actually playing the senior tour a lot then and actually also doing television. He's a announcer for NBC. So he was gone a lot. So I actually got to okay. sort of guide this design project, not knowing squat. And uh, so that's how I got into it. And it was actually, you know, I was like, eh, this is kind of cool. And there was a guy shaping on that job that, came through some people we knew and he and I ended up doing some other golf courses in the area. And it's like the, well, that was 1991 when that happened. And, uh, so there was a lot of golf courses being built at that time. So it's kind of easy, just almost fall in bed and get a job. So that's kind of how I got into it. And what was the golf course or what is the golf course? It's called the orchards golf course. It's in, I guess it's in Belleville, Illinois. It's a, it's really a housing golf course, which is kind of in the nineties, what was going on, you know, just everybody was building the housing golf courses. So it's right. The routing was more about, was done by land planners. It was more about, well, here's the land that's left over when we got the housing. And so we, we're going to put a golf course in here. You know, oh, so great. Yeah. It's, it's, it's an interesting, it's an interesting little golf course, but again, it's not something where the golf was the focus of the routing. If, or, if you know what I mean? And how did, and so you just stay and where'd you go from there? I stayed in the St. Louis, Belleville, Illinois is right next to St. Louis. It's like 11 miles from St. Louis across the Mississippi river. Okay. So I stayed in the St. Louis area for six years and did this guy that I was talking about was, did some shaping. He and I worked on like three little low budget golf courses around St. Louis, 18 hole golf courses that, you know, they're still there, but they're just, you know, they're 15, $20 golf courses. So I learned a little bit as I was going and I actually we got a job to build a new 18 hole golf course out in the country in Illinois. And at the time I had picked up Tom Dope's anatomy of a golf course book and reading. That, I was like, man, there's some really good ideas in here, but man, this guy's also sure. Sounds like he knows everything. He kind of was doing, he can't know this much. <laughs> so I was a little bit like, I don't know. I don't know about this guy, but it was like everything as I was doing this routing for this golf course and going to was like, man, everything that guy says makes tons of sense. And so I did kind of route the golf course using some of the things Tom mentions in his book, finding the green sites and, you know, just different things you want to think about. Um, and so I built that golf course, actually this guy that was shaping, he kind of disappeared at the time. So I did it myself and built it myself. Um, that's where I started really learning things. Um, and that job, and it was called Indian Springs, and it's in the middle of nowhere, really, in central, south central Illinois. But it's still there, and there's some pretty cool stuff there. There's an Indian Springs nine-hole golf course about five miles from my house in Connecticut. Yeah, there's, there's a lot of Indian Springs. I've kind of looked up that thing on the Internet a few times, and there's a lot of Indian Springs come up. But, uh, yeah, it's a cool little spot. So I did that project. 
And then I did another design actually with my dad this time back in St. Louis area. It was an 18 hole course. And it was kind of interesting at the time we had the partners in it were Curtis Strange, Jay Hoff, Jimmy Connors, the tennis player and my dad and one other local guy. So that was a little interesting project. And uh, so anyway, built that golf course. And at the time I was building that again, I was kind of using Tom Doak's book and other books as guides. And I, as that was going on, I was just like, you know, I kind of want more out of this and nothing against my dad, but as a player, you know, he has certain ideas and I was kind of going on a different path. And so I got in touch with some architects and one of them was Tom Doak and Tom got back to me and offered me a chance to go work with him out at Apache Stronghold in Arizona. So I don't know, that was 1997 and the work started in 1998 and now it's 2018 and I'm still actually doing work with Tom now and then. So 20 years of work with Tom. That's amazing. Yeah, it's been great. I've gotten to go a lot of really cool places. What courses of his have you worked on? Uh, too many to probably go into right now, but um, okay. Bally Neo out in Colorado was there all the time. Worked on Sabonic up in New York, where up your way. Yep. Um, Rock Creek out in Montana, Old McDonald. Um, I, was, I was in Terra Edie down in New Zealand for a couple of years, off and on, working on that project, which was awesome. Um, you know, different renovations, Pasa Tiempo, the Valley Club. Um, just I actually just spent about five or seven, I don't know, maybe seven months. I don't know exactly how long it was, October, eh, about five months at Bel Air in L.A. this past year, renovating that, which was awesome. So gotten to go to a lot of really great places. Actually, and worked over in Scotland with Tom at the Renaissance Club, too. Got to live uh, in a house on the 17th hole of North Berwick for the season, which was pretty awesome. <laughs> <laughs> That's fantastic. And, and maybe some other architects that people would know or not know that you worked with. Well, the one you know, I worked with Brian Silva over in Japan. He and I did a co-design in Tokyo, which was pretty cool. And that, I want to talk about that one at some point. Okay, yeah, and, and, okay. and that kind of came about because Brian and I worked together at St. Louis Country Club, which is about probably about five miles from my house here as we speak. And so we ended up working together on that. Brian was an architect. I kind of did the on-site work and shaping. So that's kind of how that happened. Yep. Charles, Charles Blair McDonald. Charles Blair McDonald. Yeah, it's a design. really cool old golf course. Really awesome. And that's kind of how it, he and I got into it. I was over seeing the superintendent one day with another friend of mine just to go check out the golf course. And we saw a plan on the wall and was like, what are you doing? You're not going to mess with this place, are you? And it's like, so I saw Brian's name on the bottom of the plan and I started, man, it's like, I had just actually moved back here from, I used to live in DC and I just moved here. And I was like, if you need any help on this, please let me help. I love this place. And so without even meeting Brian, they actually hired me to do the shaping work there. And then Brian, I met out there on the site. So that was very cool because keeping that place as it should be, it was a pretty awesome experience. And then, right, and I understand he's. I understand he did great work out there. You guys did great work. I heard he, you know, it's it's a there's a strange piece of history from there. Um, it hosted it's hosted a U.S. Men's and Women's Open, I believe, and the USTA actually, in the late 20s or early 30s, had St. Louis fill in their punch bowl because they didn't like it. Yeah, that's uh, so the USGA was kind of getting involved with architecture long before Mike Davis ever got around. Um, so it's uh, they did. 
move the punch bowl green out of the punch bowl up on the tees behind the punch bowl is in like a valley that was perpendicular to the hole. And they just moved it up on the tees that for, for the sixth hole, which is right behind it. And, and so let's hit over that valley, not into it. So they put that back before Brian was involved, but uh, yeah, that's just kind of some crazy stuff that goes on. And then other architects you mentioned, I've worked with Gil Hans. I worked with Gil a little bit last year at the Creek club up in long Island and uh, helped him out in Denver. Also helped him out on long Island once at Rockaway hunt club, which is a cool little place. And uh, who else have I worked with a little bit? I've worked with Todd Eckenrode some out in California, which has been great. And I worked with, uh, who else have I worked with? I'm sure there's others. I just can't think right now, but that's, that's the gist of it. From green strainage to sod work, Golf Preservations can handle your project with ease and give you the peace of mind to know the professionals are caring for your valuable golf course assets. Visit GolfPreservations.com or call 606-499-2732 to talk to us directly about your next project. Okay, we're back on TurfNet Renovation Report uh, with my guest, Kai Roby, who is an architect and shaper. And we were talking about some different architects that you worked for. And the co-design you had with Brian Silva in Japan. And I want to ask you about the rules and regulations and the whole trials and tribulations of working uh, in a place so far from the United States. And, I mean, I, you know, you know that Japan loves its golf, but tell me about working in Japan. Well, Brian actually called me when I was in the house looking over the 17th hole at North Berwick, I can actually remember because the sun was coming up over Bass Rock and I was sitting at this window going, this is just cool. How am I so lucky to be sitting here? <laughs> and Brian called me and he's like, hey, I've got this job in Japan. They want me to come over there and I, they want me to bring someone to to be on site in shape. And he's like, I told him I want you. And I was like, well, there's no way I'm not going to Japan. I was like, I don't want to go over there. <laughs> And he was like, he's like, you know, you got to just, just, just think about it. How much do you want to do it? I was like, I don't want to go. And, uh, he's like, so he's like, just give him a number and, you know, we'll see what happens. So I'm like, all right, I'm going to throw a number out. I threw a number at him and then he called back in like five minutes. Yeah. They said, that's good. I was like, oh, <laughs> and so I'm like, I guess crap. I guess I'm going to Japan. How did I do that? And so and we, we, before we go, before we go, we should say the name of the golf course is Abiko Golf Club. Yep. Okay. And uh, so I knew nothing about I know nothing about any of this at the time. So I started learning some from Brian about it. And uh, I think that was 2011 when I was over in Scotland in the summer. And this this job was scheduled for 2012 to start in the winter of 2012, basically at new year's day. And so that fall, I think it was somewhere around the September of October was when that earthquake and tsunami hit Japan. And I'm like, there's no way we're going over there working on a golf course. The whole country basically trashed, you know? And, uh, but they did start and I was thinking, you know, we're not gonna be able to get equipment or anything. So I showed up over there on new, I flew over on new year's day and landed on the second and had never met anybody there and showed up on the site and you know brian showed up a few days later for his visit and we got started anyway it turned into one of the greatest experiences of life it was awesome the people over there were fantastic you know i lived i lived there for six months or well for five and a half months 
and uh, it was it was awesome. It was a great experience, and I'm actually still doing work with them a little bit, and also at a couple other places in Japan. So it turned into a little nice little business opportunity as well. But uh, yeah, it was an amazing experience. The people were just fantastic at the club, and the golf course is actually a really good golf course just we got really like holy cow this is a really cool golf course and it's actually got a lot of lot of room i'm expecting going to japan it's going to be like these little narrow confined squeezed golf courses squeezed in a small area but it was a you know a big bold cool golf course and the guys that designed it in the 20s were actually disciples of hugh allison they had been over here in america in the 1920s and gone to princeton and studied all the great golf courses and so it was actually a really cool golf course but they had changed it to the two green golf course, the Japanese two green method in the sixties. And yeah, explain kinda, that because that, that's, that's a really interesting point about that. Talk about the two green. The two yeah. Greens. It's a really weird, it started with the actual, the a general over in the United States army that took over, you know, they came over after the war and took over and the golf course that they were, they had, a, you know, they, I guess they just took a golf course that someone had and it became theirs. And the greens are having problems in the summer there. It's really hot and humid. I mean, ridiculously hot and humid, and there's not a lot of sunlight. So the bent grass greens would just die. And this guy's like, oh, you know, back in Texas or whatever, we would have, you know, a bent grass green, and we had this little uh, other green out of Bermuda. And so they made these two greens on this golf course, and then everyone in Japan just started copying it as that was the system to have one Korai, which is Zoya green for the summertime. And then in the winter, fall months, they have a bent grass green and they were both usually pretty small. And unfortunately it was not a bad idea, I guess, if you couldn't grow grass, you know, it's kind of an efficient way to do that. And in time, all the greens have basically become two bent grass greens. So the whole point of having two greens has kind of gone away because they have two bent grass greens now and they've actually started getting a little bigger and they've kind of lost the point of it. And they did the, with the new bent grasses, they really don't need to have two greens. And most of the time, not everywhere, but most of the time it kind of messes the architecture up because they're very repetitive greens, just two greens kind of with bunkers in the middle and on the each side. So, you know, if you miss a green, if you're playing the green a, you miss over on near green being, you're always just hitting bunker shots. And the short game and just the variety of short game around the greens has kind of disappeared for him. So Abiko was smart enough to go and build one green and convert their two to one. So that's kind of what we were doing there. So did you guys have to make a decision on which green you were using on every hole? Not really. The, basically, the two greens were adjacent to each other and very small. So we pretty much blew up the greens complexes with both greens and rebuilt our own green on each hole. There were a couple of holes where the greens were further apart and maybe it was a par three and one green was 40 yards to the right of another green. So we kept a couple of the greens and cored them out, rebuilt them and added a few little tweaks and rebunkered them. But so in general, we rebuilt all of the greens and didn't really worry about what was there at the time, but, you know, tried to make everything fit with the golf course being a 1920s golf course. And what's the grass now that they use on greens out there? They use bent grass. So it was a newer strain of bent, and we used a 007 bent grass at the time over there. And they also did something that I hadn't seen done. They used a Cori, which is Zoya, 
they used a kind of a, I don't even know which type of zoysia it was at the time, but a really fine bladed zoysia as their collar. And it was pretty cool. When it was started, I couldn't hardly tell the difference between the bent grass and the zoysia. That's interesting. And what's, what's fairways and tees over there? All zoysia. It's actually zoysia wall to wall, rough fairways, tees, it's all zoysia. So, you know, in the, it's kind of cool because you can sort of move the fairways a little bit here and there pretty easily. There are different strains of zoysia, but it's not too hard to mow one down and make it fairway. And and can you keep a zoysia fairway firm enough? And is, I remember so, remember playing on a zoysia golf course maybe 15, 20 years ago where the, I felt like the grass was sticky, so it was very hard to play the ground game. Yeah, and it's, it's kind of like that. It's like, it's like that a little bit. Now I live in St. Louis where it's sort of a Zoysia belt of the United States. Most of the golf courses here are also Zoysia fairways. Um, so having grown up on that, I am kind of experienced with it a little bit, but it can, if you let it get thatchy, it can get very spongy. And oh, I think a lot of the average player, you know, mid handicap guys really kind of like it because the ball sits up and it's almost like hitting off of a new driving range mat. You just kind of have this fluffy, bounce to the shot that you can always just kind of hit it perfect and you don't have to hit it fat and but there are, i have seen some superintendents that have had this pretty lean and mean and if you get the zoysia pretty dry and you get the thatch out of it it can play pretty dang well but it's never going to be playing like fescue or something right. where you can hit a bump and run it's right. always going to be a little sticky but it's not like Kakuya, where it's just insane velcro right and so, and when you guys get to, when you and Brian are working on these greens, how, what did you find for the contouring of the, of the greens that, that they had built the, you know, the, these two green complexes? Um, there was a little bit and the original greens, the Akabos, Akaboshi with the architect, they actually, some of the pictures, they had some pretty cool contours in there, but most of the greens were pretty simple, but there was, there was a few interesting little moves in there, but uh, the greens we have now have plenty of internal movement. <laughs> yeah. Well, I'm thinking you and Brian as a combination are going to have some fun because I know Brian is not a fan of placid greens. No, no. We, there was, he was pretty, you know, I was there for six months straight and he would come in every month for a day or two. And so he was pretty free of letting me just kind of go with the greens and wing it pretty good. And so there's some cool stuff. And, you know, we were talking a little earlier before we got online on the air here about the Japanese were kind of a little afraid of contour. And they were they said, well, we don't want any potato chip greens. And I was like, what's a potato chip green? And so we started learning <laughs> that a potato chip green was just a derogatory term over there for a green that has a lot of movement, roly-poly. It's not just kind of level. And so that was something you had to fight with them, not, not fight, but kind of overcome, letting them know that we could put contour in there that was intelligent and well done. It wasn't something that repelled a golf ball. And isn't that interesting because that's the description I've heard as a compliment to describe Alistair McKenzie greens, is that he described that he designed potato chip greens and potato chip greens that I've bet on of his are fantastic. I never would have thought of it as a, as a, a, criti a criticism of a green design. Yeah, I wouldn't have either going into it. And, you know, we were talking a little bit again. There's a story that Ben Crenshaw and Bill Corr were sitting around pulling potato chips out of a bag during lunchtime one day about how cool of the greens could be. That would be an awesome green. Look at that. Rotated around, came this way. And then Bill flipped the potato chip over. And what about that? Look at that. And so, you know, I guess 
maybe it's a little cultural, but it's all in the eye of the beholder. But right. I just think the Japanese have been afraid over there of crazy contour. And I, we mentioned the 1980s, the Japanese had a ton of golf courses being built on some very, maybe not ideal land. And I think they got some golf courses that maybe had some contour that wasn't, were not really well built on the greens. And so it made them maybe afraid of, you know, having contouring greens. But, uh, if you go to the great golf courses. In- but that's a good point. I mean, with the boom over there in the 80s, if they were bringing in people who weren't qualified architects and people started just messing around, you could pr- you probably were going to put some pretty awful with some pretty awful greens, whether they were severely slumped back to front or just had ridiculous. Yeah, and if you, if you just build a green by a set of plans and it shows this or that, and then the guy interprets it, how he interprets it, and that architect's probably never making another visit to Japan. So, you know, it's just whoever was building it at the time and you think you got it right, but if you have a little bit of a crown on a small, see, you have a little small plateau in the back left of your green, but it's also kind of crowned on that plateau and every ball is repelled, you're going to think contours are stupid because you can't get your ball there, you know? So, it, you know, it takes a little, it takes a little skill to get a, a cool green built. It doesn't just accidentally happen usually. And you said, you told we talked about before that you and Brian had worked at St. Louis together. So did you bring some, Charles Blair McDonald St. Louis Country Club with you to Japan? Yeah, you know, Brian's kind of been known, at least at that time, especially he is doing a lot of Rainer McDonald kind of stylistic things in his own work. And we did put a, there's a Biarritzi double plateau green on one of the holes. There's a Redanish par four green. It's not a, maybe a technical Redan because it's on a par four. So it's, but it does have that big left to right kick. Um, there, I built this green that I kind of copied the maiden green at St. Louis Country Club, the sixth green on one of the holes there. Not an exact copy, but that's kind of Rainer and McDonald. They didn't really copy exactly. They used themes and sort of let it go from there. Um, I was going to so, say, yeah, exactly. I mean, that's exactly, yeah, you put it, you, you fit it to the site. So if you put a maiden green, which is a green with two black, two back plateaus um, and a divide between them for people who aren't familiar with the design, that's awesome because that's what they would have done. You know what I mean? Is adapted it to the site. Yeah. And that's, you know, and to the hole, it's like, okay, this whole, you know, the main green from St. Louis doesn't work here because it's not the same piece of land, but the concept of the contours and why they work, you can definitely do that. And uh, I think that's some of the template stuff that people might do. They maybe try too hard to force a perfect copy of it. in when, you know, just take the concept. Yeah, I agree with you. So, and that's where Rainer and McDonald were geniuses. I don't know how those guys, actually pulled it off still but they they were able to just finesse those things in with a little difference every time and yet still you can tell the resemblance it's quite amazing isn't it yeah it really it's it's it is, it's something it's it's something i think a lot of us could learn from just because they didn't mess with the terrain between the tea and green very much you know and they found the green sites and then put those template greens into those green sites but rotate you know the double plateau might be rotated on a different angle or the front plateau is in a different spot coming in and you know they were just they spent and they also this is where tom doak you know working with tom doak in the past tom's kind of taken that same angle is that spend your time on the greens because that's where that's where the real design starts and you know so take time on that and just get the routing right where you don't have to be blowing up between t and green all the time right I think that's uh, that's one of, and Brian Silva and I have talked about this, probably the biggest misconception of McDonald 
and Rainer is that they moved a lot of Earth. Other than other and than you like get out Yale. to a place like Fisher's <laughs> Island and you realize, yeah, well, yeah, well, yeah, because they built it on a rock uh, rock outcropping, so you had to do yeah. something there. And apparently spend, what was it, $8 million in today's money or $20 million in today's money to build that golf course. I agree. But you get to a place like Fisher's Island where they, he, Rainer rarely, really didn't touch the land between green and tea. You can see that it's just natural contouring. And there was nothing to push around and you didn't need to overdo it. And so they did. No, and they really, you know, they even just working on the greens, if you, from, you know, have, doing a lot of shaping work. When I play golf courses, especially with the other guys that do the same kind of work, we'll be kind of looking around. Where did they get the dirt to build this green? How did they fit this green into this site? Where did that come from? And you start looking and, you know, they were really just so efficient and just geniuses at creating the amount of fill they needed right on those same places. So it was really cool. It's cool. to look And at. I think that's that's Rainer's talent. Right. Rainer's talent as an engineer as a civil engineer, I think he, he knew that, you know, he knew the numbers. If you dig this way, this much, you get this. They you know. and William Langford golf courses are like that too. They're amazing. because Those things were all built from plans and just, they are insane. The amount of dirt they moved on green sites and that they tied in perfectly the way they, the way they don't really tie in, but they, they somehow blend in by not even all oh, the, the bunkers might be 15 feet deep and they don't tie in, but, Somehow they made it all work. It's pretty amazing. I, I think the for the two Langford courses I've been on, including Culver Academy and the Rainer McDonald stuff, from the player's perspective coming in from a fairway, it's amazing how it ties in and it looks so natural. And then you get off to the side and behind these greens and you've realized how much earth they've moved to make it look that to make it look that yeah, way. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. And Langford seemed to really enjoy taking greens if you're playing on a into a green site that has like a fall away hill behind it. He loved just pushing that thing out almost like a diving board off the back edge of these fall offs. And you get on the back and there's 15 or 20 foot fall off off the back of the green. You know, it's just, it was pretty wild. Or he even would, we laugh sometimes playing Langford courses. It's like a green will be on top of the hill. And it's like, yeah, you're playing uphill, but it's not enough. Let's add like, dig the bunkers out and add another six or eight feet of height to this thing. You know, <laughs> it's just, but like you said, they tied, they tied in the front. And so that's the genius. You could still run the ball in. Right, right. And, and you know, that's interesting you say that about Langford because I haven't seen enough of his stuff to know. But a lot of Rainer Greens, and I think this is a missed uh, concept that people don't realize, a lot of the safe places on Rainer Greens are long. You know, when you're talking about where off the back of Langford Greens are problems, you can find some pretty safe places. And, and by the way, you're talking about a, a Redan at the end of a par four. He, he referred to it in, in an article at um, Olympic Club in 1918. They referred to it as a two-shot Redan. And I really think that's something that McDonald and, okay. and Rayner came up with. That's cool. I haven't seen that. Yeah. And it, it, it's, it's a, you know, and so they come up with a two-shot. And the Redans are always, or not always, but most of the time, long on a Redan is safe, you know, kind of. But you miss left and right, and you're in a whole lot of trouble. And, I always think of eight at Yale where you're 30 feet below the green if you're left. And if you're slightly long, you just kind of trickle into rough, you know? Yeah. And there, I'm just, I'm kind of thinking my way around some Rainer McDonald stuff as you're talking. And there are places for sure that they do tend to give you somewhere to miss. It's not always death, you know? Right. Right. And, and, and from the little of Langford, you know, I'm trying to go back over Culver and there's a course down the road from there that has four or five, 
like Max and Cucky. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I walked out with P- we went out. I went out with um, PV Dye and saw that golf course, and you know it's, it's amazing. There's some there. I, I need. To, I'm, I'm in the wrong part of the country to say this, but I need to play more Langford stuff. You know, it's Midwest, but I need to go see some more Langford because what I've seen is phenomenal. Yeah, there's there's unfortunately not that much of it, and uh, I actually I actually consult and work on one of those courses up in Wisconsin called West Bend Country Club which is a nine hole Langford and nine holes that aren't Langford, but the nine hole Langford stuff is just insane. It's amazing. It's like, it just, it just, it blows your mind what he did. Yeah, that's exactly. I've talked to somebody who played it or was chatting with somebody who played it. And that's exactly what they say is the nine holes there are, are amazing. And I want to talk to you about the most recent job you were on or still part of is nine holes in Saratoga, uh, New York. Yeah. It's a, uh, cool little golf course that I got hired to renovate uh, a year ago or so. And we just did this fall and it's a nine hole course right in the center of Saratoga Springs. It's maybe three quarters of a mile or less from the center of downtown. And it was like I said, built in 1896 and really hasn't been touched much. It was a, it was, they have a horse track up there that they, a lot of people may be familiar with. And so in the summer, a lot of the horse people kind of come up for August and this club was basically for them. And it was, they didn't even allow locals to be members until the late 1970s. Oh, that's so interesting. I didn't when they left the locals. Yeah. Yeah. I didn't either. And that I kind of learned the history and it was, uh, it wasn't until the locals actually got in from what I understand that any changes made, like you could look at the aerials and really trees had hardly been planted I think the summer people didn't want to spend any money on it, which was fortunate probably that it, you know, didn't get changed. And uh, so the, the locals started planting trees and then in the mid eighties, they decided they, you know, make it better by adding some bunkers and um, did a little bit of this and that, but fortunately not much was spent on it. So we, you know, we took all the, all that out basically and took the tr- a lot of the trees down, opened up some vistas and views and, did a lot of mowing and deleted all the bunkers and expanded the greens. And it's, it's pretty cool. It's actually a really cool little nine hole golf course. And they actually just hired a new superintendent, Stephen Aspinall, I think is how you pronounce his last name. I just, he and I just got to work there the last few weeks of the job actually. And um, so he just came from Morris County talking about Rainer McDonald. And uh, so he just got up there and he is, uh, you know, going to be working the next well, the next year or so, kind of pulling this thing together, and it should be really cool. And look forward to kind of seeing how it turns out. I think it'll be, you know, you're the expert maybe on nine hole golf courses, but I think it'll be, you know, worth mentioning in the top nine hole golf courses around the country. Right. And and are you Don't done pushing dirt there? Culver, or, or? Which is me. Yeah. No, we didn't really push much dirt. Honestly, it was just rebuilding the bunkers. I mean, we pulled four feet of sand out of a lot of the bunkering. They just, there's no drainage in the bunkers and the old superintendent, I think they get the green. If a bunker was wet, they just do more sand in it, you know? So, uh, as your guys probably know, when the sand gets that deep, it starts spreading outside where it's supposed to be. And, uh, you know, the bunker shapes kind of disappear. So we took all the sand out and rebuilt the bunkers, filled in the ones that weren't original. And, uh, you know, we didn't really push any dirt to speak up. There was, other than building a new putting green. Really, no, we didn't really do any of that kind of work. I want to thank uh, 
Dan Colby for uh, an architect and shaper for spending some time with me today. This has been a fascinating uh, conversation. Uh, thanks, thanks for taking the time to uh, to talk to me today. Yeah, thanks, Anthony. I appreciate it. I look forward to seeing you up at Saratoga Springs. Yeah, I hope so. Uh, this is Anthony Piapi, and you have been listening to the Renovation Report on TurfNet Radio. Lucky Land Casino asking people, "What's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky?" Lucky in line at the deli, I guess. Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.